Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Shashi Muso. She had four buttholes. I saw her naked once, and there were four separate entities. It was amazing. That and more, but before that, let's get on down. Take it from this redhead queer. You don't have time to go to the post office. It will be packed with so many people you'll want to scream. So use stamps.com instead. You use your own computer and printer to print your U.S. postage for your letters and packages. We use stamps.com. Why don't you use stamps.com? Right now, get this special offer when you use my promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, and we know that's just confusing. <gasps> Plus $110 bonus off for the digital scale. And free postage. Go to stamps.com before anything else. Click the mic on the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Where can you find everything you need to create an exceptional website? Squarespace.com Squarespace.com And you can drag and drop 
is also brought to you this week by Casper at Casper.com, where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com slash risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right, latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code RISK. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is something from the soundtrack to Deep Throat behind me now. This is the best of Risk number nine. Around about every five months or so, we like to, like, look back at some of our favorite stories that we've featured. And these episodes are the best, these best of episodes for introducing new people to what we're doing. So if you know anyone who hasn't heard the show before, tell them to check out some of these best of episodes because they have a great variety of, you know, some of our favorites. One of the things that we can never do on these best of shows is include some of the longer stories. You know, some stories told on risk take an entire episode. So, for example, one that leaps to mind right now, if you haven't heard it, is Marcy Langlois' story called Surrender, a story of a horribly traumatic accident wherein three people die, 
And then the 15-year-long process of recuperation where uh, Marcy reclaims her well-being is just incredibly inspiring. So if you haven't heard the Surrender episode, my goodness, go find it. But really, every episode of Risk has something that's going to rattle your brain or tug at your heart or get you bursting out laughing. I mean, it's always very loaded and very unfiltered. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the fantastically named Shashi Muso. But before that, a good friend of mine who works at WBEZ in Chicago, Tyler Green works on all kinds of shows you know and love, like The Moth, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, his own podcast called General Admission. Here he is now with a story we call Like Lovers Do. Six weeks ago now, I performed at a storytelling night here in Chicago called Outspoken, which is a new LGBT-focused storytelling night here in the vast Chicago storytelling scene. I was so nervous that night. Even despite the fact I was surrounded by all of my friends, I just was shaking. I think I had two or three glasses of wine before I even got on stage, which is never a good idea for anyone. Sweaty palms... Part of the reason that I was nervous is that this was about things that I had never told in public before. I had definitely told on porches here in Chicago or in one-on-one situations, but I never told them to a room full of 200 people with the subject, uh, my partner, in the room. And some of the stuff that we talk about when it comes to his family, and his family is in China, And his relationship with them is stuff that I had to ask permission from him to tell. A little over three years ago now, I think OkCupid had just introduced the sort of Find Me Now feature, which is pretty similar to like a Grindr or a Tinder or any number of these apps that are out now that... I haven't really used. I had gotten completely drunk with a friend of mine, as I did a lot during that time of my life. It was about two, three in the morning, about the time that you start to get a little interested in maybe having somebody over. And so I go to this feature and I'm looking at all the people. And at this point, I'm so drunk and so kind of, I'll use the word desperate, that I'm just kind of clicking on everybody, you know, and I'm messaging everybody. I'm copy and pasting a message and just sending it to like over 20 people. <laughs> and it's like basically the same thing, like come over, hang out, let's talk, you know, that thing, right? And I'm being super charming, but kind of annoying. And so I get this guy and he responds to me. And so I'm like, okay, got somebody on the line, right? I got him. I'm going to reel this person in. (laughs) And so I just keep messaging him. And meanwhile, my friend is sitting there continuing to drink and we're hanging out. And he agrees to finally come over. So friend passes out and I'll never forget, Joe, he shows up. I see this small, quiet looking Chinese boy wearing bright white pants and a black and white striped shirt 
t-shirt in the middle of winter and just got this smile on his face. All teeth and like cute little round cheeks. And, and he's so tiny and so adorable in that truest sense of that word, but so unlike any other person I had been with up to that point. And you could tell that he's like wasted, <laughs> he's, but he's really quiet and really timid. And so I invite him in and we talked and nothing really happened that night. I think we might have made out a little bit, but I distinctly remember looking him in the eye and saying, you are trouble. You're going to be trouble. <laughs> and uh, the next morning I woke up and I remember one of the things that I texted him on OkCupid was that if you come over, I'll make you breakfast. So I made him breakfast and he left. And kind of just courted for a while. And so that is the difference, I think, between the past relationships and this one. It was the first one where it felt like, okay, I found somebody who is in many ways the exact opposite of me. So he slowed me down. He sort of put the brakes on and he forced me to kind of question a lot of the things that I did, a lot of the stuff that I've done and a lot of the behaviors that I have. And that's how it sort of all began. And then at some point, I think it was about a year into our relationship, he went home to China, as he does every year, and he came out to his family. His mom was very, very upset. We got really depressed, threatened to kill herself if he didn't break up with me. Uh, And so then there was another phase where he said he broke up with me. So at some point, we decided that we were going to get married. We made this sort of life plan together after we talked about the milestones of having a kid, getting married, all the things that you discuss as a couple. But for somebody like me who's incredibly anxious, the idea of proposing caused me such anxiety that I said, you have to propose because I can't do this. Just like the very thought of proposing to him made me just as anxious as I was when I was introduced at Outspoken that night in Boys Town in Chicago. (laughs) There are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is completely out of our control. I have a mass on my spinal cord, he told me over the phone while I was at work at WBEZ. A mass? Does that mean like cancer or what? He said, I don't know, I can't really read this report. Now he does come from China and English is his second language, but most of us in this room, unless you're a doctor, probably can't read medical reports. So I went home immediately and a lot of people in situations like these would go into sort of a panic mode appeal to the emotion of the situation, hear that word cancer and mass, and get freaked out, and be entirely unhelpful. I have anxiety. I'm putting my hands behind my back to remain calm. (laughs) And uh, what I do to create order in my life is I make lists. Lists are very calming to me. And so I went into caregiver mode almost immediately. I went and I looked for the top surgeons in the city, I sent the MRI results in. What they do is you send them in and then they call you back on their terms. So the next day we got like two calls almost immediately. Yeah, you got to come in. We made an appointment at Rush Hospital, one of the great neurosurgical institutions in the country. And we went into a room and I spent like 30 minutes yesterday trying to think of like a pop culture reference for this nurse to try to describe her for you. And I typed hot movie nurse, hot TV nurse. Let's just say she was hot and blonde. 
The doctor, on the other hand, we did not struggle with a pop culture reference. He was McDreamy. He walked in, and he Harvard-educated, hotter than hell, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He said, you have a tumor in your spinal cord that needs to come out. We do minimally invasive spinal cord surgeries here. We do them a lot, and we do them very well. We make a small incision. We cut out the tumor. We seal you back up. You recover for six to eight weeks, and that's it. So, <laughs> we made an appointment, and I think now at this point it was thinking back probably only because of how hot he was, uh, but there was just something about him that instilled a confidence in us to <laughs> say yes. Um, so the next day I was uh, at work and I got another call from one of the hospitals. This was Northwestern which was higher ranked than Rush. Um, and this guy in particular was an expert in spinal cord deformity reconstructions. So we figured, okay, it's like two blocks from where we live downtown right now, and he knows the area pretty well, we'll give him a shot. And the doctor came in, his name was Tyler Kosky, had my first name, so that was a good sign. And he was completely disheveled. He had like a surgical hat still on. Uh, he had all of his fatigues on, no Armani suit or anything like that. And he had a computer and he said, has anybody showed you this MRI? And we sort of both looked at each other and said, no, actually we haven't seen it yet. We've seen the text, but not the image. So he brings his computer down and he, he clicks a, a box in the corner, I'll never forget. It was The Hobbit, he was watching The Hobbit. <laughs> And I'm like, you could talk now, but I'm sold. But he, he talked, <laughs> talked for another like 45 minutes to an hour about everything that could go wrong in this situation. It was the first time I heard the word paralysis. It was the first time I heard the word cancer. Um, and it was his opinion that the surgery should not be minimally invasive, that instead it should be open. And so instead of making a small incision on the neck, you make a much larger incision and you open the entire neck. Um, his justification for this was that my partner is about 105 pounds, uh, is very skinny, and so there's not a whole lot of room to work. And it was pushing so hard against the spinal cord that he didn't want to risk it. So we did what any uh, gay couple in distress does in a situation like this, and we went to uh, Crate and Barrel. <laughs> we walked around uh, for like 30, 45 minutes and just looked at shit, <laughs> um, and then just sort of looked at each other and were like, yeah, let's, let's go with that guy. Uh, it seemed like the right thing to do, so. It's the day of the surgery, and there are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is entirely out of our control. I don't know if any of you have had a moment where you had a loved one go to a major operation where he's probably gonna live, but you don't necessarily know something horrible could happen. And there's that moment where they take the person away on the gurney, and you sort of play that moment, I still do it, back in your mind, because you wanna do it better, you wanna do something else, you wanna hug them or kiss them or squeeze their hand or do something, but it sort of just happens very objectively and fast, and then they're gone, and they're not in your hands anymore. So they told me the surgery was supposed to be four hours, which is, in my mind, a long time. And I went to the waiting room at Northwestern, which contains, I don't know, probably 100 different people, all different levels of extreme situations. There are TVs that have numbers and statuses. 
So I'm looking at that number, and then there's two volunteers at a desk with two phones. Those phones go to the operating rooms. You get updates periodically. So four hours. I've got amazing friends. My friend Andrew stopped by, brought snacks. He's been through multiple surgeries. Stayed with me for two, three hours. My friend Chris from college came. We hung out for a little bit. And then hour four came along, and I hadn't received any updates. My friend Amber showed up, and I asked her to sit down and wait for a second, because I was going to try to get to figure out what was going on. So I called the operating room, and uh, she said, everything is fine, but we had a little bit of a delay. Now, in a situation like that, of course, I'm like, a delay? What do you mean? Is he going to die? What's happening? She said, of course, is not going to tell me anything other than we had a little bit of a delay. We'll call you back. So at this point, five hours, six hours, people are leaving the waiting room. Like, there were 100 people there before. Maybe there's 20, seven hours. There's me, Amber, talking to each other about nothing, and this other family that had been there all day, and I will never forget this family. I don't know what was going on, uh, but it was sudden, I could tell, and very, very grim. And so they were having a sort of a prayer circle, and I was with my friend. At hour eight, uh, Dr. Tyler Kosky busts through the operating room door, and I will never forget his face. If you watched Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi in their heyday, didn't like Pete Sampras, by the way, I was an Agassi guy, but when Pete won, he always had this look on his face like he was fucking exhausted, but then he'd get this little smirk. Like, I did it, you know? And that's exactly what Dr. Kosky's face looked like. He came up to me and explained what happened. He said, when you called at hour four, the tumor was connected to a big nerve for movement and for sensation. So he had peeled away each fiber of the tumor for movement, successfully, at hour four. And then he did most of the one for sensation, so as expected. And then there was a little tiny piece of tumor still attached to the nerve. And he said, I looked at it, and I had to decide. And I heard that word tumor, very unsettling. And he said we could either cut it and risk that he would never feel his hand again, or do radiation. And I said, radiation? So is it cancer? And he said, well, we flash froze the sample in the operating room, and there's a 95% chance that it is not cancer. We will know for sure in a month, but there's a very good chance. <sighs> Big sigh of relief, right? I said, so what did you do? And he said, I snipped it. And I, you know, I do the moth, as um, Art said, and I hear a lot of stories, and I need to hear more stories of surgeons, because that moment, that decision, I have no idea. And uh, so I thanked him. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Thanks, Doc. And uh, he sent me up to the ICU, where Joe was recovering, and he was higher than a kite. <laughs> like, morphine times 100. <laughs> And he was awake, and uh, I walked up to him, and I grabbed his hand, and I squeezed it, and I said, honey, can you feel that? And he said, yes, why? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, nah, you'll just find out tomorrow. And <laughs> just <laughs> turn around, <laughs> let Amber sort of deal with that moment, so. My friend Don, uh, who had a moment before I came on stage, um, 
has this theory about stories where he says that if you're the hero when you've finished your story, then you should write it again. The hero of this story is not me. The hero of this story is my partner, who, mm, who went through this process of surgery, which is not why I'm getting emotional. That was tough, and he did it, and I'm proud of him. Part of the story that I didn't tell you was that he came out to his parents, who are from China, uh, two years before this. They did not handle it well. One of the bargaining chips for his mother was that we had to break up um, or she was going to kill herself. Now, we don't know if that was serious or not, but you got to take that seriously. So we sort of told her that that was what we were going to do, and they Skype every week, and I would go to the corner and sort of hide away, and it just happened that way for a year and gave him his time. This last winter, he went back to China and came out again to his family and told them about the surgery, told them that I had been living with him this whole time and that I was the one that was taking care of him. About a month ago, um, I was sitting on the couch watching Oz and uh, he is on the phone or on on the iPad with his mom and I'm sitting there next to him closer than I've ever sat when he's been in conversation with her and he turns the iPad over to me and his mom is there. And through translation, he said that she said that she was very proud of me and thanked me for taking care of her son on behalf of their whole family. So tomorrow morning, you can't write this, we are going to sign on our new home in Edgewater that is um, big enough for a little baby and uh, hopefully a mother from the East. Thank you. Wow. That was beautiful. Someone makes us cry every damn month. (laughs) That was wonderful. Um, Oh my gosh, yes! Come! (laughs) I never thought I would cry, but I did. By the way, I could read that report, okay? I speak English. Um, I, 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 I came up here, it's because we, uh, we're going to get married this October, but he said, you're going to propose, and I never did, so Tyler James Green, will you marry me?
Yes. <laughs> About 1976 in San Francisco, I had this great lady friend who I had met when I was in high school in Kansas. She was not in high school, but I had directed a community theater play, which I hired her for, and gossip began that we were having an affair, although most people knew I was gay, but it was like a stupid little town. I'm going to call her Joyce, because it sort of makes me feel strong. So anyway, she's a Coke dealer, pot dealer, acid maker. She leaves me in charge of her house. She's going away to do a deal somewhere. And she has, like, liquid acid in her freezer. Because you're supposed to, I guess, freeze liquid acid or it goes bad. I don't really know. But um, the refrigerator breaks when she's gone. Now, I'm taking care of her 12-year-old child, too, Scott. Delightful child. And it's just, like, great there. She was a woman that would get up in the morning. Before she got out of bed, she needed a joint a line of cocaine, and cocoa with the small marshmallows in it. Serious, before she even took the covers off of herself. And she walked like a Giselle. She had posture. I was working for Taste of Honey Bakery on 24th and Diamond in San Francisco. San Francisco, the 70s, you know, oh, hello, hello. Oh, I ate a half an avocado today and I feel so spaced out. <laughs> you know, that kind of mentality, which I never really liked. But um, I was living in the bakery. I lived above the alcove in the door. I mean, it literally was a, a triangle-shaped thing above the entrance to the door is where my bed was. And I would balance on the beams to climb up there to go to bed and I'd get down in the morning and bake which is really fun when you go out to bars at night and you bring someone home and you give them baked goods and tea and say, come into my bakery. And, uh, anyway, that's where I met James Kirkleski and he was with this Bonnie girl and they, there was this baby and I thought they were like a family. And he was so pretty. Well, I got sick and I had to sleep in the basement because I couldn't be sick above the door when they're open. So I was sleeping in the basement because I was really sick. And he came down to see how I was. And that vibe began, you know. It was there, that vibe. You wanted each other. And I'm going like, I'm really sick. He said, I don't care. And our relationship began. Bonnie was a friend. The baby was not his. He had admired me from the moment he met me. And then I was not good to him, I don't think. I love to fool around, but I didn't want him to. So anyway, the refrigerator broke down. So she comes back. There's a big pot deal going on. We got the fat lady in the room. We've got her sister with asthma. We've got Scott, the 12-year-old child. We got my boyfriend, James Kirk Lesky. Obviously, his parents were into Star Trek. And this guy that's coming to do the deal who looks sort of like Antonio Banderas. I describe him that so it gives you a visual. He was there for a drug deal. The fat lady was a regular. She had four buttholes. She was so fat. I saw her naked once, and there were four separate entities. It was amazing. She had four buttholes. 
well, it was probably one passageway, which she had four separate things coming out of there. It wasn't a hemorrhoid. So Joyce says, oh my God, this is no good anymore. So she takes a little container of acid, shakes it on her finger like you would put on perfume. And she goes around and puts a finger on everybody's tongue saying, this is for you, saying it's no good. Everything became one. People started melting. We must have had a hundred hits of acid each. She didn't do it to Scott. We put Scott in his room. But Scott said, butterflies. And the whole room was filled with butterflies. And I thought, oh, I'll put on music. So I make the mistake of putting on Bonnie Bramlett, which is very, you know, like, uh, cowboys and Indians and everyone. Then someone said, we got to turn out the lights. But at one point, there were no seams in anything. Everything was one, was absolutely one. So I don't know where Joyce went, but then she opens her bedroom door. She's totally naked. She has a gorgeous body. And she says, I need a black plastic bag. I said, oh, oh, I'll get you a black plastic bag. Went into the kitchen. I opened the pantry. I pulled out a big black plastic bag. Then I went back to her naked body standing in the door and I said, why do you need the black plastic bag? She said, I vomited on the carpet. And she bent over and I got to see her perfectly shaped rear and she picked up the vomited carpet and she put it in the black bag and she said, Shashi, take the bag to the back. I said, yes. And I took it to the back. So I go back into the living room where people are like little bugs moving around in the dark. Afterwards, I could only imagine what they were going through. At that time, I could only deal with what I was going through. I had just done the black bag. And so Joyce's sister says, oh my God, I can't breathe. And everyone looks at Joyce's sister. She says, my head is falling off. Her head fell off. It rolled across the floor. Everyone's watching this. No, I'm, I'm saying this is what I saw when this happened to me. I will tell you what we talked about days later. You know, we're all in like the lettuce position, sitting at the table, eating with chopsticks. I said, remember when Joy, I can't remember Joyce's sister's name, but I said, remember when she said, my head, and they said, and her head rolled across the floor, everyone at the same time. But we know it didn't happen. And I'm going like, God damn it, man. Everybody saw that. Joyce went over, picked it up, put it back on her sister's body, and then we went about moving around again. <laughs> And I turn around and there's light from the kitchen. And there they were on the floor, James Kirk and Antonio. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And I was so jealous. I was horrified. But I wasn't going to stop it. 
I didn't have the right, but you know, I do now remember that I just thought it was absolutely gorgeous. I know now that he had the right to love other people. We might still be together this day if, we, if I had allowed that. He allowed me. Well, I demanded it. I mean, it was my right. I was Shashi Muso. But I was young, I was beautiful. I was the boss, I was the money maker. I was everything. If I ever blame myself for anything in my life, it is losing that person. I knew we were all an acid. Something in me said, no, 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 no. Shashi Muso has to leave now. And the person I love was there. But I had to go back to my base, my home where I lived with many people, and I had so much acid in my system. I figured if I could regurgitate as much out of my system that I would get some of that out of there. The only way I knew to do it is to do something horrible. I went into the bathroom, and I shat in my hand, and I stuck it in my mouth, and I chewed on it so I could vomit. I needed to do that in order to escape because I couldn't stay there. I couldn't stay there and let what I was allowing to have happen between those two. And I tripped enough in my life. I had been high on enough things, peyote, mescaline, mushrooms, that I knew I was going into the next stage. I was going to plateau into another stage, which was even higher, but I did not want to go there. I did not need to be in that group. I wanted to hold on to myself. And I had to go back to where I lived. I figured whatever was going on there was going on there, and I just chewed on my own shit. So I got in, there happened to be a taxi there. I got in and I told him where to take me and I think he was getting a contact high. I know he was. And so much was going on. The streets were passing. I pull out a $5 bill that completely stretches the whole length of the cab. And I said, is this enough? <laughs> the cab driver said, that's plenty. <laughs> but the thing was bigger than the cab. It was, it was. And... I lived with six other people then. We had marijuana plants growing in the back and strawberries and string beans and Jerusalem artichokes and we all did yoga. Um, no one was home. So I rose up in a little ball on the floor and I prayed. And they found me. And they comforted me and they put me in a hot bath. And at one point uh, in the bath, I said, you know, you need to find out what's happened to Scott, the child, because God knows what could have happened to him. He was a 12-year-old child that we had locked in a room because everyone had 100 hits of acid. I mean, it was like Olivia de Havilland in Snake Pit, that last shot where she's crazy in the asylum and it all looks like snakes. It was that kind of look, thing I saw before I left. I made the conscious choice not to be a part of that. It could have been a good time. 
But for some reason, I said, I'm not doing that. Leave Joyce and her black bag and Antonio and my boyfriend and the fat lady with four butts. And I just was like, I wasn't having any of it, baby. I said, I'm taking my big $5 bill and I'm going home. <laughs> I look back at it as one of the most amazing moments in my life. As I have grown older, I can look back at it and see the things I missed that were right there for me. Like my respect for James Kirkleski. Oh, can he please even to this day forgive me? I think if we're lucky, we at least find one person in our life that to the day we die, we know we loved totally. And he loved me, he loved me. And I look back, I was bad to him, but not in a cruel way. It's just that I wanted what I wanted. I didn't want him to want what he wanted, but I wanted him to want me. It doesn't work that way, I know now. And I was full of myself back then. But I, I hope one day I see him before I'm gone. Risk. This is Lord Huron behind me now, and we just heard from the fascinating Shashi Muso. <laughs> Shashi is someone we definitely have to have back in 2016. In a little bit, we're going to hear from another favorite eccentric personality of ours that we often feature, and that is T.S. Madison. T.S. Madison owns her own little porn empire that you can find at bigdickbitch.com. But before we get to her, we're going to switch gears 
a much more serious story here that was performed at our Portland show. We did a couple of shows in Portland this year, and this was one of the first stories where we took a story told live in front of an audience and then added sound design on top of it. Very interesting little experiment we did here. Callie Towell tells the story, and she had never done a live storytelling show before, so that makes this all the more remarkable. Here she is now, Callie Towell, with a story we call The Real Story. When I was six years old, I found myself in a set of terrifying circumstances where my um, two-year-old brother Cameron's life was literally in my hands. We lived in a rural town in western Idaho called Weezer. And Weezer was a town that supported crop farming and livestock ranching. The locals referred to the area that surrounded Weezer as the flats. And the flats stretched for miles in directions all around Weezer. My mother's father, Red, lived out on the flats in a single wide trailer. And they often used Red as a babysitter for us kids. I remember Red as being larger than life. He had a full head of red hair. He was tall. He was strong. He was loud. And he was no one that you would ever want to make angry. Even my mother, who anyone would tell you is someone who is and was no one to be trifle with, didn't want to upset Red. As an example, when I was a child, once I was playing in the yard, and I stepped on a cigarette butt that Red had flicked into the yard. I was barefoot, and it stuck to my skin and burned a hole in it. My mother rushed over to me as I sat crying in the grass. She picked me up, and she took me over to the porch, and I thought it was to examine my wound. But instead, she put her face very close to mine, and she said in a hushed but stern tone, you need to stop crying right now. You are upsetting your grandfather. And even though I was a young child, that message was actually pretty clear. So on this particular day, my mother and father needed to go shopping out of town, and they took with them my infant brother, but they left myself and my not-quite-three-year-old brother Cameron with our grandfather Red at his house. The routine was pretty steady when Red took care of us. We played outside unsupervised until it got dark or we got hungry. And if you were a kid with an imagination, it was okay because the area surrounding Red's house was actually pretty rich. We had the Snake River, we had the surrounding crops, 
the railroad tracks and the slough at our disposal. And on the summers where the crops were corn, we could actually disappear into our own world. I like to role play. And every time that we role played, for me, it was the same scenario. We were children, there were no adults, and we could and did live off the land, just like Daniel Boone or Laura Ingalls would. My brother Cameron and I loved this game, and we would play it until it was time to go inside. On this night, we went inside um, just before dark to find food. And when we would go inside, we knew if Red was in a good mood, he would make us either box mac and cheese or top ramen, and we would get our own Coke in a glass bottle. But on this night when we opened the door, we found Red sitting at the kitchen table. He was chain-smoking, he was drinking, and he was reading a novel. And as I opened the door, I could feel that the trailer was full of his anger. I knew what to do. This wasn't new. I needed to keep us out of his sight. So I put Cameron on the couch, I turned on the TV, and I made us top ramen as quietly as possible. Cameron and I spent that evening watching Wonder Woman, eating Top Ramen, and drinking our Cokes in glass bottles, which we, of course, pretended were beers. Throughout the evening, Red got increasingly angry. Each time he got up to go and get another drink from the kitchen, he would curse and swear. And he was actually known for cursing and swearing in this rhythmic fashion. He carried a dish towel in his back pocket, and he would use this dish towel to beat the kitchen counters and the cupboards as he ranted and moved from the kitchen table to the kitchen to get his drink and back again. What I wanted was to turn up the TV so I couldn't hear this anymore. But that meant stepping into his view. And so I didn't. When my parents returned to town, they had a sleeping infant and perishables in the car, so they went home first. And then they called Red to say that one of them would be on their way to come and pick us up. At that point, he insisted on driving us home himself. And they agreed to it. Cameron was sleeping on the couch in a diaper and a t-shirt. And to me, Red seemed too sleepy to drive. His head kept drooping, and when he walked, he would trip. And so I felt really uneasy. Because of this, I carried Cameron to the car myself. I laid him sleeping in the back seat, and then I got in the front seat. I had a plan in mind. And what I was going to do was talk to Red while he drived so that he wouldn't fall asleep. But as we drove, I just couldn't think of anything to say. And on this particular day, I was wearing one of my favorite outfits. It was a black dress with yellow flowers all over it. I had a white button-up sweater and these brown knee-high boots. And instead of talking to Red, I played connect the dots with the flowers on my dress in my lap. As we drove, Red's head started to bob. And then he started to lean towards the right, which is where I was sitting in the front seat. And then he would jerk back up, and the car would swerve when he did it each time. And then one time as he leaned over, it actually felt like he was just going to lay his head in my lap and fall asleep. And then he jerked himself back up and the car kind of swerved all over the road. And I thought, I've got to figure out something to say to keep him awake. And so the last time that his head drooped over, in a desperate attempt to say something, I blurted out, today we learned a new song in school. 
And while his head was leaning over to the right, he actually looked directly in my face. So we were a couple inches apart as he drove down the highway in the dark. His breath smelled like beer and an ashtray. And he said, what? And then I was upside down, stuck inside of a box. And the box was dark. And there were sharp things inside of the box that poked me every time I moved. And the only sound in the world was Cameron screaming. I couldn't figure out what was happening. My mind was fuzzy and it was hard to breathe. I thought my eyes were open, but I couldn't see anything. And so I decided maybe I wasn't awake and it was okay to go back to sleep. And so I did. And then Cameron was screaming again. I became aware that my chin was stuck to my chest and maybe that was why it was hard to breathe. And my body wasn't following basic instructions like get up and move. And panic set in. I ignored the pain that came from the sharp things poking me every time I moved. And I began to shift and turn and crawl. And eventually I was able to look up. And when I did, stars. I could see stars. And so... I crawled towards the stars through this maze that I was stuck in until I was on top and I was outside and it was dark. And then I remembered. It was dark when we left. It was dark when Red was driving us home. Red must have wrecked the car. But there was no sign of Red. And I was looking around and still Cameron was screaming. And I realized Cameron needed my help. And so I dropped back into this maze. And I was standing inside of the maze and I was calling out to Cameron, but he wasn't answering me. He continued to scream and his screams were kind of mixed with this crying and this moaning. And I could only see as far as I could reach. And so I moved through this maze that was actually the wreckage of Red's car until I got to the back end of the wagon. And there I found Cameron and he was lying on his side and he was curled up in a ball and he was screaming and he was covered in this black liquid. And I touched him, and I told him I was there. And I told him it was going to be okay, and I picked him up. And he didn't answer me, and he didn't talk to me, but he did stop screaming. And so with Cameron heavy in my arms, I stepped through what had been the back window of Red's car into the dark night. Everything was confusing, and everything felt really hard. I was standing in the gravel on the side of the road and just moving from the gravel to the side of the road felt like this special challenge. But I got up onto the road and I held Cameron and still no sign of red. And Cameron was so little and he was so injured and I was so scared that he was going to die. Out on the flats in the dark like that, there were no landmarks for me to figure out where I was. It was 1981. There were no cell phones. There was no OnStar. And there were no streetlights. And I was alone. And I stood there holding Cameron for what felt like a very long time. 
and I knew the railroad tracks were in front of me. And I knew if I kept the railroad tracks to my left, I could walk into town and I could find someone to help us. And I knew my left from my right because my left ring finger had warts on it. And so I decided to walk to town. And I began to walk. And Cameron was at the same time so heavy and so little and so still. And I repeated to myself in my head as I walked, don't die, don't die, please don't die. I knew the black liquid was blood and it made me feel like I needed to puke. But there was nowhere soft and safe to lay Cameron down and there was no way for me to rest and I didn't know how I was gonna make it to town. But I thought I would just walk until I did. Even though there were no signs of any cars, I decided to walk in the middle of the road so no one could drive past us. I knew between me and town, there was a farm that had a couple of mean German shepherds, and I started to worry about them. They were known for running into the highway and chasing cars. I prayed they were locked up at night. And I thought if they were locked up at night, I could go to that farmhouse and I could ask for help. But if they were out, I needed a plan. I needed a way to get past them without getting attacked. And so I made this plan in my mind that I would put the railroad tracks between myself and these dogs and maybe they wouldn't want to cross the railroad tracks because they were afraid of trains and they wouldn't attack us. And it was about that time that way in the distance I could see car lights. And I thought, please, please don't turn off. Please keep coming. And it was about then that I heard Red from behind me calling my name. And I went from feeling this sense of hope to this sense of dread that now I had to deal with Red. I turned around and I saw him. He was walking towards us down the road. He had this funny slant about him. He was sort of leaning forwards. He was sort of leaning to the side. And he was calling to me to come back to him. And I turned from him back to the headlights. Cameron needed help. Cameron was dying. I was going towards the headlights. And I continued to walk in the road towards the headlights. And I could hear right behind me, God damn it, Callie. Get back here now. Get back off the road and I looked back again I couldn't have thought at the time but now looking back he kind of looked like a walker from the walking dead and I thought maybe he won't catch me and I need to get help and I continued to walk towards the headlights as the headlights came towards us I thought to myself the lights will catch me before the car hits me so they can stop and if they are going to turn off Maybe they'll see me in the distance and they'll keep coming. So I ignored Red, carrying Cameron, who was silent, towards these headlights. Just before the car got to me, which didn't turn off, Red caught up. And he yanked Cameron from my arms. He nearly fell over as he did. I started begging him, please give him back. Please give him back to me. But Red wouldn't listen and he wouldn't give him back to me. I felt like Cameron was so little and he was so frail that if Red dropped him, he would die instantly when he hit the pavement. 
As the car pulled up, the driver's side window rolled down, and it was this little old lady who was by herself. When she saw what was happening, she exclaimed that we needed to go to the hospital now. Red was leaning in, he was holding Cameron, and, and, and they began to argue because Red said he wanted a ride home to his house, not to the hospital. I stood behind Red, and I was so terrified that my chest hurt. I didn't know what to do, and the adults were arguing. I was listening to the way that Red was talking to the lady, and I was familiar. I'd seen him do it many times before. The swearing and the tone, he always got his way when he spoke this way towards people. I didn't know what to do. As Red argued with the lady, telling her that we needed to go home to his house and not to the hospital, he was holding Cameron sort of like a baby. Cameron's neck was resting in the crook of Red's left elbow. He was trying to hold him, but his right arm had kind of almost gone straight, and so Cameron's body was dropping well below Red's waist. What I didn't know at the time, and I know now, Red actually had a fractured cervical spine from this accident. Though it was mildly displaced, he had a broken neck when all of this was going on, and it accounted for his severe right-sided weakness and that slant that I was witnessing. He was telling the lady that if she wasn't going to take us home, she needed to just drive the hell on down the road. I couldn't let her drive away, and I could see that she was scared. But as they argued, I moved up beside Red, and I was able to get Cameron's legs, and then I got a lot of his body. And as Red turned to me to tell me to stop, I was able to get the rest of Cameron, and I kind of stumbled backwards, and I was able to actually open the backseat driver's side door and sort of fall into the car. And once I had Cameron and myself in the car, I locked the door. Inside the car, I noticed her interior was red. And I thought, this is good. At least Cameron's blood is not going to ruin her car. Red was standing outside the car, and he yelled at me, God damn it. Get out of the car, Callie. I couldn't look at him, and so I looked straight ahead. It was probably the nicest car I've ever been inside of. And I started focusing on the details inside of the car. Her front seats had these fluffy seat covers. It smelled like flowers. It was even decorated inside. And I was not going to get out. Cameron's skin was white. He was silent. And he was covered in blood. The lady said to Red, Please get inside. We, we don't want to leave you here. But I'm taking the children. And so Red decided... He would get inside and he would come into town with us. But I wasn't going to unlock my door. I didn't trust him. And I didn't believe he wouldn't just pull us out of the car. I made him walk around the car and get in on the other side. Once he was in the car, though, Red began to browbeat this woman again. She was afraid of him. He told her to take us to his house, like he said. Finally, she said, I'll take you to your house. But when I get home, I'm calling the authorities. And Red said, I don't give a good goddamn what you do after you drop us off at my house. As we began to drive towards Red's home, Red looked at me and said, I can't see. You tell her how to get there. And I don't know why, but I decided to let her drive past his house. And then I let her do it three more times. 
had this knowing that Cameron would die if we went back to Red's house that night. And Red said to me, we have to get to my house. I need to bathe your brother before your mother sees him. Somewhere in these driving back and forth up the flats, the lady got the courage to say, I'm driving into town. I'm taking you to the hospital. And as we drove towards town, Red said, don't take us to the hospital, take us to their house. We actually lived on the edge of town where you would have to drive past our house anyways. And as we got close to our house, I could see that my parents' car was in the driveway and I started screaming, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Take us to my mom and dad, they're home. And as she pulled into the driveway, before the car even stopped, I jumped out and I was running to the house and I was screaming for my mom and dad. When they realized what had happened, panic ensued. When they saw my brother, it shot to a whole new level. Everyone jumped in the car to drive to the hospital, and we left Red, still refusing care, in our driveway. I understand now he didn't want his level of intoxication documented in association with what happened that night. When we got to the hospital, everyone swarmed around my brother and took him away. My mom wanted to be with him, but they told her that she had to wait, and so my parents sat in silence. The waiting room was so big and it was so bright and I didn't know what to do with myself and so I found a chair in the corner and I hid behind it. A nurse found me there and she took me to see a doctor and she got me a juice and she told me that my brother was going to be okay. And there were many stories that were born from that night. We talked about how Red hit loose gravel, how the car blew a tire, and despite his best efforts, it flipped anyways. We talked about how Red stuck his arm out to save me from going through the windshield, which caused him to go through instead, and those were the results of his severe injuries. We talked about what a miracle it was that Red was able to carry Cameron down the road and flag down a car to get help, even though he had a broken neck. Nobody was able to tell the truth that I just told you guys tonight. Thank you. have led a life of escorting and hooking and porn and all this type of stuff so you know of course a girl in my line of work has all types of crazy stories so I had a gentleman caller to call my advertisement this had to be like in the year 2004 and he was a Hispanic guy so I couldn't hardly understand him on the phone, but you know, most Spanish men know the main words, fucky, fucky, and money. 
So they know those words. So, you know, he called me. He was like, fucky, fucky. How much to fucky, fucky? And I was like, what's $200 for 30 minutes? He's like, okay, well, I'm going to book my appointment to come and see you. So it was already difficult for me to give him directions, child, to get to my spot, to the home. So I'm on the telephone, like, trying to guide him here. saying, no, baby, left. Izquierda. Izquierda. Make a left. Izquierda. On the, the corner. So... When he got to the house after about 30 minutes, he got there and he told me, Ay, mommy, you're so beautiful. And I was like, thank you, baby. Thank you. And I said, so what would you like? And he was like, uh, fucky, fucky. And I said, okay, well, do you have the $200? So he pulled out the $200 or whatever. He folded it up. It was $10, $20 bills. So I laid down about four towels because I didn't know what was going to happen. The majority of the guy that knows what you are or has an inkling of what you are is there because you have your package. You know what I'm saying? And nine times out of ten, there are guys that don't start out liking it but end up liking it. I tell a guy, these are the steps in dealing with a trans. You know they're trans, you get your dick sucked. You know they're trans. You move from getting your dick sucked to actually penetrating. You move from penetrating to actually doing a reach around. It goes from a reach around to, hmm, I might want to see how this tastes, how this might feel in my mouth. And it goes from them getting a little taste to saying, well, you know, maybe I'd like to know how it feels in my ass. And there you have it. You're a full-rounded guy after that, you know. But... It starts out with the initial trans attraction. The illusion is woman, but the dick is the toy. It's a toy. And I got a really, really stiff erection because he was a very, very cute Hispanic guy. And honey, he just dropped down and he started giving me fellatio. And he was really eating me like a medianoche, which is a midnight sandwich. He was really... I mean, really eating. And I was like, oh, God, you better stop because I'm about to explode. So he was like, oh, mommy, yo quiero. You fucking me. You fucking me. And I was like, baby, um, are you sure you want me to? Because you're a small man and you have a... <laughs> You have a petite frame, like a woman's frame, but you're short and, you know, very Mexican. He was a very Mexican type, but he was very handsome. But you know how some Mexicans are very short and, you know, there's no shade to Mexican, but it, it is what it is. So, you know, he commenced to climb on the bed and he spread his cakes. He got on all fours and his ass was tooted open. And I had the opportunity to look at his hole. So I was just there staring at his hole. Like, it, it looked very inviting. The hole was... It was like calling me like Madison, yes, please, you know, come inside me. I was like, oh, God, I just hope I don't come really fast because this looks like a really, really, really good hole. And I was wanted to go inside. I put on the condom and I, I grabbed both of his cheek and I spit in his hole like... <sighs> He's like, yes, mommy, yes. And he started to wiggle it around like he was really hot for it, like really hot. So, honey, you know, I reached over to the side and I got the condom and I rolled the condom down. And, you know, I as, as being a girl of such a well endowment like myself, I wear the gold packs, the Magnum XLs. So and I asked him again. I said, baby, are you sure this is what you want? And he was the way he was twerking his booty like around like, fuck me, mommy. Fuck me, mommy. I said, all right, you get what you asked for. Honey, 
I'm not going to bother to tell you, child, that I put the lube on and I got my cock really, really wet. And he was really back there squirming. He was calling for, mommy, hey, mommy, fuck me, mommy. Fuck me, mommy. You know, his head was down on the bed and his ass was tooted up in the air and it was just jerking around. Fuck me, mommy. Fuck me, mommy. Fuck me, mommy. So I'm commenced to placing the anaconda inside of his hole. And he just flew off it real fast. He flew off it. Oh, mommy. Oh, like he just flew straight forward off it onto the bed and he lay flat. And he's like, oh, mommy. Oh, go slow, mommy. It's slow, mommy. It's slow. So he reached around from the, uh, <laughs> and grabbed it. And he started to guide it in. You know, like, like they guide a plane down to the runway. So he started guiding it right on there into the hole, and he put in a little bit that he could take, he came off of it, put in a little bit he could take and came off of it, put until eventually it opened up and it went in, and I went all the way down balls deep, and he was like, ay, mommy, you know, and so I was like, baby, are you okay? Are you feeling any type of discomfort? Is there anything that I can get you, like, while I'm inside? Would you like water, tea, soda? He's like, huh? I was like, I was being funny, you know. So I asked him, is it okay if I begin to give you your fantasy? He was like, yes, mommy, fuck me. So I just started to, you know. And he was just taking it, oh, oh, yes, mommy. Hi, mommy. Hi. Hi, mommy. And he's twirling it around and rolling it around and rolling it around. Like, hi, mommy. His erection is like ridiculously hard because I can see it flopping on his stomach and laying down on the towels and whatever. And he's just saying, hi, mommy. Hi. And he's looking back at me like he's some freaking porn star bitch, like throwing his hair back, like, hi, yes, mommy. Hi. Hi. So at this point, it started to get really good to me. So I speeded up the pace. And I grabbed him around his waist and I started to dig him. And he's like, yes, yes, mommy, mommy, yes. I, 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 mommy, I, I, mommy, I, I, my God, I, 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 I. And then he said, I, my God, mommy, I, I, my God, I, my God. And I just, when I pushed him off of the cock, an entire goose egg came out of his ass. It's like it was a full turd that just came out and it flopped down on the towel. And so when the goose egg came out, I, I stayed out and I looked down at it like, oh, my God, this did not just happen. And he's still gyrating the Rolex in his ass because he wanted me to shove the cock back inside. And I'm holding him this way, like away from it, like looking in disbelief, like, oh, my God, this man has had an entire meal here on my bed like he left an entire submarine sandwich or something here on the bed like this and I was like how could one human produce this much pile of shit in one wop like that like it's like I was tearing him up and I came out and so did the doo-doo like it just came out like I was a plunger like you know how you do use a plunger and it pulls out the stuff it just came out and it was in a shit pile like god if someone could have captured my expression and then he started to try to position himself to come back and lifted up his kneecap and he was going to put his knee down into the shit and i screamed no baby why so he just was like what happened 
Do you know this fool had the audacity to turn around and look at this pile of human shit and say, Hey, pero mommy, what happened? Did you do that? I was like, what? Okay, wait. Baby, do you think that I got up here and laid an egg right here while I was fucking you? This is your baby. This is your egg. This is your meal right here on the bed like this. How the fuck are you going to ask me? Is this me? Did I do that? Like an Urkel. Did I do that? No, bitch. You just did this. This is what you did. I'll never forget it. It was just like in a sequence. I, 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 mommy. I, mommy. I, I. Pero mommy, what happened? Bitch, you shit it. The guy might have been into scat. I can't get into the scat. You know what I'm saying? To each his own. But I can't get into the scat. I, I've seen some videos on scat and I have almost died. I have some gay boy children, I call them my gay sons, that used to work Rent Boy and Adam for Adam or whatever, and my son was reading the paper, and someone had called his line, and he and I were FaceTiming, and uh, they called his, you know, we all keep an extra line, we keep a whole phone and the regular phone, so they called his whole phone or whatever, and, and he and I were FaceTiming, and he said, girl, do you know this man wants me to take a full dump in his face, and I was like, girl, you're lying, and then he was like, yeah, he wants me to take a full dump in his face, and then he said, bitch, this is definitely the right time, because I just had some sushi and a dragon roll, and I'm going to wear him out, so he put the phone up there on the mantle. You know, in between the stuff, so the man wouldn't notice that the phone was there or whatever. And bitch, Jesus, I, I, I just, I couldn't take it. So he was a really fat guy, and he laid on his back. He laid down there on the floor on his back, and I'm intensely watching this, like intensely. So he started licking my son's ass, like licking his hole, like, like really, like, mm, like. I, I just was there, really like, oh, M, freaking G, you know? And my son picks up a paper, like a newspaper from over there, and he opens the paper up. like, And it was, I think he did that in order for me to laugh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm about to take, you know, just what happens when you're in the bathroom. He's squatting over the man, and then it just started happening, and it was... I just screamed, like, ah! Because I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, I screamed and hung up. Now, I know that gave away his phone privileges because I was not supposed to be watching that. <laughs> the guy asked him what it was because but I had hung up, so you know. And he said it was his phone, that was his ringtone or something. He told him it wasn't on something in the house. Oh, anyway, Hispanic guy. So he got really mad, and he stood up or whatever, and I rolled the towels up, and I threw them in the garbage. And they were really good towels. Like, you know those very expensive towels that you get from Bed Bath & Beyond? It was too beyond. I had to throw them away, but he was really standing there with a gaping hole and shit on his legs. I was like, oh my God, baby, no. Just stay still. And I took the towel, and I took his hands... And I made him wipe his own ass in all that area, you know, to throw that shit away. And I was like, baby, the date is over. Like, I'm not going to be fucking you anymore. I'm not giving you any more of this good dick. You can't handle the good dick. You can't handle it. You have to be able to hold your mud. 
You know, and he had on those tidy whities You know those tidy whities how white they are. Those, I know the back of those are so full of shit. And he pulled them up or whatever, and I escorted him downstairs, honey. And I put him out. And he commenced to go down the street and call me and tell me he loves me. Mommy, I love you. I love you, mommy. I want you to fuck me again right now. And I'm like, baby, you can never call my phone number again. Ladies and gentlemen, when you decide or you happen to be tossed into adult work, sex work, or anything, there are a lot of surprises. And if you're not into some shit, you will learn how to be into some shit by the time you're finished with that part of the career. You know, you'll experience some of the most exciting money and some of the most disgusting sex. And some good sex. You will get some good sex, you know. And it will come from the most normal looking people. Like everyday people. You you have no idea what people are really into until it's time to take off their clothes. a story about unintentional or maybe non-consensual scat play, it's time to break out the BTO. Bachman Turner Overdrive! <laughs> yes, bitch! BTO! <laughs> but in all seriousness, I knew or I felt that we needed a little bit of a break, you know, a, a tonal break, because our last story, we're going to go right back into the breach, and I don't mean the breach between the old defecating Mexi cheeks. <laughs> okay, but seriously, our final story comes to us from one of our Portland shows that we did this year, Monica Welty brought the house down with this one. It's just a beautiful story. We call it The Healing Heart. Hey, 
six years ago, my husband and I had our first child, a daughter. And in the hospital room after an unexpected C-section, um, he leaned over me and put his hand on my head and she was put into my arms for the first time. And I looked at her and I felt my heart expand. It was a physical sensation, but it was on the outside of my body, right in front of my chest. My heart had to grow to be able to encompass the endless, boundless love that I felt for this new baby. Three and a half years later, we were again in the hospital. My husband with his arm around me and me holding our newborn son, Harvey. Harvey was tethered to his little bed in the NICU by a variety of wires. There was uh, wires monitoring his brain activity that was barely there. Uh, Tubes for the ventilator and the feeding tube and the heart monitor and the IV. And the doctors had used words like, the prognosis is grim and he's had a severe insult to his brain. And I sat there staring up at this white, sterile wall where the ceiling and the wall met and this gray shadow that was cast in that little corner. And I began to let what they were really saying in, which was grim meant dire and irreparable damage meant his brain was irreparably damaged. So I realized that my son was going to die. And as I looked down at his sweet little face with all of the tubes and the tape, I felt that space again. And I recognized it immediately, this physical sensation out here. But this time, instead of growing larger, it tore apart. And it felt like flesh. It was like I could feel the fibers of this space tearing apart, and what was left was this ragged, bloody hole. Harvey lived for 39 hours, and we packed up our things from the NICU, and we went home to tell our daughter that baby brother wasn't coming home like we had promised. My husband and I had been together at that point for 12 years. I was 22 years old when we had gotten together. And so we built our lives together. We found our careers during our relationship. I was a massage therapist and he was a teacher. We were building a home. We were building a family. We expected that there would be ups and downs, but we didn't ever expect that something like this would happen to us. Who does? So we would lay in our bed at night shortly after Harvey died, and we would watch the movies of our trauma playing on our brains. We would hold on to each other, and when they released their grasp, we would cry, and we would hold each other, and we would talk, and we would connect. And we were having such a similar experience that I felt guilty thinking... (laughs) wow, Harvey dying has brought us together. We're closer than we've ever been before. We're connecting on this brand new level after all of these years. 
Harvey died because my uterus ruptured, which basically never happens. The baby usually doesn't die in a rupture. Usually, the rupture heals correctly, but that did not happen to me. So six months after Harvey died, we were back at the hospital to get this rupture sewn up in my uterus. And this time, the doctors were inescapably hopeful that they were going to go in there and they were going to sew it up and we were going to have another baby. And there will never be another baby that replaces Harvey. We could have 17 more babies and we would still, each of us, every single day of our lives, mourn and yearn for and feel the weight of the absence of our son. But there was hope there. There was a light at this fucking endless tunnel. If we could have another baby, we could feel that joy again. We might be able to have some kind of semblance of the life that we had planned for ourselves feel normal again in some way. When I woke up after my surgery, my husband was at the side of my bed sobbing. And the only thing I could think, why else would he be crying? Had I lost my fertility? So I, my drug-induced haze, I said, did they take the uterus? And he looked at me with his red, swollen, tear-stained face. And in this relieved panic, he said, you're okay. You're going to be okay. You're okay. And I had no idea what he was talking about. So he told me later that the normally jovial, confident surgeon had come into the waiting room, ashen, and in shock himself, telling my husband that I had come minutes from dying within the surgery, that the rupture was not where they thought it was, and that I began to bleed out, but that they were able to save me, and that was the good news. And the bad news was that I couldn't have any more children, that even a first trimester pregnancy would be fatal to both me and the child. It gets better. (laughs) So I'm in recovery for three days, and on the third day, I'm sitting there, I am, lying in the hospital bed, looking at that stupid space with the fucking shadow gray, in shock, like trying to figure out, like, how am I going to integrate this, right? How do I handle all of this loss? Like, the path that I was walking down just became a cliff, and I don't even see where my life fits in. How am I going to be a present mother to my living child? How am I going to be a supportive wife to my grieving husband? And then, bing, I get a text message from my husband. It's not intended for me yes (laughs) so it's intended for another woman who he's arranging to have sex with that afternoon and what do you say like in what circumstance is there anything you know so I'm like staring at the like what well that's shit timing So I start laughing, right? I mean, what kind of soap opera has, like, how, this is funny now. Like, this is getting funny. I mean, am I going to, like, get struck by lightning next? Like, what, what is, what is happening? What is happening? So it just was absurd. 
it was also at the bottom of my priority list, the cheating husband. So I got home the next day, and we um, had very heart-to-heart talks that turned out to be bullshit. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I can't... How the hell am I going to live without my husband, right? Like, I can hardly take care of myself and my child. We're six months out, right, from the loss of this baby, our baby. And also, my kids, they're the most important... Our kids are the most important thing. This is about me and my husband and whatever the fuck is going on with him. And we can go to therapy and we can figure this out. I can't do this without him. I don't want to. I mean, 22 years old, right? It's my, my guy. So I wasn't 22 at that time, but when we got together. So we went to therapy and we're working on it. And we're doing all sorts of... Um, Things like he's texting me every 15 to 20 minutes when he's out. And I went to New York with my daughter and um, we Skyped all the time and talked and called and so that there was like not enough time for him to be sleeping with anybody. (laughs) Right, basically, right? And we agreed, like from now on, man, monogamy until we get on our feet and we get through this shit and we rebuild our relationship and then we'll talk about it. We can talk about it, but not right now. Like, let's get our shit together. So... (laughs) Um, so about six months after that so we're at 13 months after Harvey dies and he's out and I'm like you know I should check um, maybe we need a new texting plan because his texts keep going over for months now so I go to the computer and I'm like att.com blah 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 and I'm like wait a second who is he texting all the time so there was two phone numbers in the record, mine, whoop, and one other, his girlfriend's. So that was the end of that. So I came, he came home that night, and I was like, this is done. And God bless him. You know how they say that in the South? Like, God bless him. <laughs> like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> right? He denied the whole thing, Right? Denied the whole thing. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? And then as I persisted, well, we're just friends, right? So once again, I was awake all night long, laying now in my bed, looking at the stupid white wall and ceiling in the fucking corner. And then we never got around to painting. (laughs) What am I going to do? So I wake him up in the wee, because he can sleep, right? So I, I wake him up, right, in the, in the, uh, I wake him up in the early morning hours in like a full-blown panic attack, which I don't know, I've never had this before. It's good to have new experiences. So he does what you're supposed to do, which neither of us knows, but he puts his arms around me and he's talking to me and he's doing the confessions. Oh, I forgot to tell you. The bullshit that he was telling me earlier before therapy turned out to be a lie because he'd been cheating on me for the entirety of the relationship, almost. We can give, we'll give him a year or two. Uh, so it wasn't a new thing. It wasn't Harvey, which he, it wasn't Harvey. So he's telling me his confessions and this happened with her and that happened with her and he loves me and da, 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 da. And right, not, I'm like, I don't, fishbowl, fishbowl. Everything starts to be just mumbles like Charlie Brown's teacher. And my daughter comes in and she is a higher-pitched mumble, and I feel the weight of the bed lift as he gets up to tend to her and then lower as he comes back 
to lay down next to me. And I begin this mantra in my head, Monica, you're either going to the mental hospital or to work. Hospital or work, hospital or work, hospital or work, hospital or work. And then a voice that's not my voice says, get up and go to work. And I thought, yes, I can't. Of course, I'm financially dependent on him at this point. So I have to be able to support myself and my daughter. So I got up and I went to work and I did good work that day. And then I collapsed on the floor of my spa into the arms of my best friend. My daughter had tethered me here. She gave me a reason to get up in the morning because she needed to have breakfast. She gave me a reason to go outside because she needed to play. She gave me something outside of my body to love and care for and be the reason to live. But now I was broken. I, I couldn't see in front of me any kind of manageable situation. So my mind started letting me go. She can just go with my husband and his girlfriend, and they can just start over without me. If you die, she'll be less damaged than having this mother who is this broken shell. And I was still in shock. So there was a rationality that remains, if any of you have been there, for a few days while you're in shock. So I told my friends I needed to be on a suicide watch. I talked to my dad and said, you need to find me at least an outpatient mental hospital, because I'm not going to get through this. So the next day, like a robot, I, don't, I got up again, once again, thanks to um, shock, and I went to work. And that day, we had a new um, woman who was coming to work for us at the spa, and she was a shaman. And she was having, that day, a ceremony, before she started working there, to bless the space. So we got there, the three of us who worked there, we all sat down and there was an altar and it had crystals and feathers and gems and rattles and drums. And we all sat there while another shaman and her partner walked throughout the whole space, wafting sage and drumming, ba-bum, 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 like horses' hooves. And that constant drumming sort of took the shaman out of our world and into whatever is over there so that they could remove the energies and get the spirits and the beings out of the space that were hindering our business and then talk to the space and ask the space what it needed to heal. So at this point, I think it's a bunch of hoo-ha, right? Like, my life is like in shards at my feet, right? And we're drumming and rattling. So I had been saying for months that my body didn't feel like my body anymore. I was overweight, and I was, but I was swollen also, and I had a hard time getting up and down, and I was a fitness instructor before this. Um, and I didn't have, uh, I didn't recognize my thoughts or my feelings. They were all hateful and jealous and angry and desperate. And I was unrecognizable to myself. So I sat there with the drumming and the rattling. And I moved my hips a little bit. And all of a sudden, I recognized them, that those were my hips. And so I moved my back and I stretched my arms. And I felt my back and my arms move, and it was like 
a funnel from the heavens into my head, like pouring myself back into myself. I have never, I wouldn't believe it if it didn't happen to me. And I started exclaiming to near strangers, I feel like myself again. I feel like myself again. And they called me into the hallway for the individual healing portion of this amazing ceremony. And I stood there and I just surrendered and I closed my eyes and I opened my palms and I heard the ba-bum, 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 ba-bum right behind my head and the sage wafting up and down my body and then I felt that space for the third time in my life. And as I stood there, that space started coming back together and it stitched itself back together like scar tissue, like dark, dense, strong scar tissue. Our bodies make scar tissue because that's a vulnerable area, and it overdoes it. And right here in this not physical and yet physical space, I felt my heart close up again. I felt my daughter in there. She'd always been in there. But now I felt my son in there, too. And this is the only place where I can hold them forever, no matter what. I went home. I told my husband it was time for him to move out. And I worked like hell. I worked like hell to get back on my feet and get my business going. I worked like hell with my grief and through my grief. I worked like hell to try to find again some kind of joy, maybe, passion, gratitude. I worked like hell to become the mother that I wanted to be to my only living child, to be the role model and the woman that she could watch and grow up with. And so ever since then, I've promised myself that I'm going to walk through this life with that heart on the outside of my body, that is mangled and scarred and bruised and beautiful and open and full and here. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Iron and Wine and Calexico behind me now. 
Don't forget, you will get $50 off your purchase of one of those fantastic Casper mattresses if you go to casper.com slash risk and use the promo code risk. Also, on the 15th of January, 2016, we are in San Francisco. On the 27th, of January, we are at the Bell House for the first time. We're moving our New York City show to the Bell House in Brooklyn. So come on out and see us on the 28th. We are at the Nerdist Showroom in Los Angeles on the 10th of February. We're in Carborough, North Carolina. The theme of that show is holy shit, and we are taking pitches. So write to me at kevin at risk-show.com. On the 12th of February, we're in Austin, Texas. The theme is confused. On the 13th, we're in Houston. The theme is hostile. And on the 14th of February, we're in Dallas, Texas. The theme is guilty. All three of those Texas shows, we are taking pitches. You could be a part of those shows if you email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget, we teach storytelling, too. We have an amazing online class that you can take in your own time. Lots of video content, lots of worksheets to download. It's called Intro to Storytelling, and you can find it at thestorystudio.org. Not to mention our corporate workshops or the one-on-one training I do with people over Skype or the workshops we have in Los Angeles and New York and Minneapolis even. Don't forget that on Twitter and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. And there's so much to find to shop for or old content to look through at risk-show.com. One of the things you can do at risk-show.com is go to the support page and make a donation. We've always been infinitely grateful for the support of our listeners. Happy 2016, everyone. Folks, this year's the year. Take a risk. <laughs>